Father, we do ask that you would make us holy for your glorious purpose, for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we come to you today praying that you would use your word to sanctify us. And Lord, if there are those who do not truly repent and have not truly surrendered to you, we pray that today's preaching and singing and reading of your word would convict them of their sin and cause in their hearts a desire to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and to follow Jesus Christ. Lord, this is something we trust you to do. It is not something that I as a preacher can do. It is not something that we can persuade people of by words and fine reasoning. It is something only your Spirit can do. And so, Lord, we ask by the power of your Spirit you would move in the hearts of us and all those who hear the preaching of your Word today, that you would change us, mold us to become like your Son. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as always, it's a wonderful privilege indeed that we have to open God's Word together and study. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 16 today, and we are going to continue our study, Take Up Your Cross. Last week, we studied verses 21 to 23 of Matthew 16. Jesus unveiled the way of the cross, I called it, His relentless commitment to go on that necessary path. The path to the cross, in spite of all the pain and evil, we discover to obey the Father always yields a glorious return. This week, we will consider only one verse, probably the most familiar verse in this text. And there we find, in terms of discipleship, the truth of the cross. The truth is that in order to follow Christ, to be His disciple, we too must deny any selfish ambition be willing to suffer and die for the glory of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. So let me read to you our passage, and again, I want to read the entire section, 21 to 28. Follow along in your Bibles. I'll read aloud. Pay special attention to verse 24, which is what we're going to focus on today. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But He turned, to Peter, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom." 
This is the Word of God. In a marriage ceremony, we go to the altar and before our friends, before our church family, before perhaps our pastors, we stand before all and we make what? We make vows. We vow to love and cherish and be faithful to one another. We vow to do this until what? Until death do us part. And once these vows are made, we, we don't go back to the old way of life, do we? We, go back, we don't go back to our respective parents' basements and live as single people. No, it's a vow of unity. It is a vow of wedding two people into one unit. We leave our parents and we cleave to one another. It's a, it's a vow, really, of maturity. It's the next step in life. It's to take that step in maturity now as a married couple. But there's even more to that in our vows. We also vow to be faithful to one another, don't we? I remember right after Becky and I were married, an old girlfriend called. That happened one time and one time only. Never again. The flirtations of a single life are over at marriage when that vow is made. It's really a, an abomination to, to flirt or even talk too much to those to find some sort of satisfaction in the opposite sex. Why? Because in your spouse, you have all you need. You have all you need in terms of partnership and love and intimacy. You, you cease looking for that kind of friendship outside of marriage. The, the old life is over. A new life, a life that is faithful to your spouse, intimate with one single person, has begun. Let me tell you another part of your marriage vows. You're vowing to do whatever it takes to stay together. Meaning this, when you fail, and both parties will fail multiple times during the marriage, when you fail these vows, you race to repentance and forgiveness. This becomes a focus of yours. It becomes really an obsession of those who take their marriage vows seriously, every day you do this, every day, even in many little ways, you, you seek to repent and live repentant and to live away from sin, and you seek ways to forgive those who sin against you, particularly your spouse. If you've sinned, you, you find ways to set up, way, set up patterns in your life and boundaries in your life that you won't sin again against your spouse. And if you have been sinned against, you find ways and to remind yourself of the forgiveness of Christ so that you can offer that forgiveness to the repentant spouse. There's a commitment to repentance and forgiveness, and, and this idea of repentance and forgiveness, it really colors your marriage. It, it defines who you are as a married couple. Now, let me just say this. If you have problems in your marriage, it always boils down to this, doesn't it? Repentance and forgiveness. Oh, maybe whatever sin that's there, there's, you may be the one who sinned more and needs to repent more, or maybe you're the one who needs to forgive more, but, but usually both are involved in both repenting and forgiving on a regular basis. And, and let me just say this, if, if you don't do it in the little things, you just wait until the big things show up in your life, there's going to be marriage problems inevitably. Usually both spouses fail in some way or another, but if you constantly make a way to repentance and living a life in submission to Christ, live a life 
that mimics His forgiveness of you for your sin towards your spouse, what you find is marital happiness. A final element of your marriage vows, and this sort of goes along with all that I've said, it's really the climax of all these things, a final element of your marriage vows is the idea of self-sacrifice. You make a vow to value your spouse over yourself. The selfish days are over. Even if it costs you money, even if it costs you time, even if it costs you your life, you give it freely to the one to whom you've made your vow. It is a vow of self-sacrifice. Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, a single man, gives us married folks some divinely inspired instruction. You can read all about that. He gets to the end of his instruction to married couples, and he says in verse 31 of Ephesians 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this, is a, this mystery is profound. Of course, it's more of a mystery to Paul because he's not married. But I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, he's saying that the purpose of marriage is that it would be a parable or picture of what happens in salvation. In salvation, vows are made. The flirtation with other gods is over. You give your life to the groom, your shepherd, Jesus Christ alone. Your life is now defined by repentance and resting in the forgiveness that He secured for you at the cross. The climactic part of that vow is that you're committed to Christ no matter what, even if it costs you your life. He gave His life for you. You give His life as a living sacrifice for Him, ready to give up all for the cause of Christ. Now, what is startling and truly sad is that all across Christianity, even if many people profess Christ, even they may believe themselves to be Christians, there are Christians who live in perpetual violation of these vows. They assume that because they, they prayed a prayer or they got their name on a church roll or perhaps they, they give a little or do a little for the church, give a little bit to charity or affirm some doctrinal truths that they're fine with God and their eternity is secure, though they live in constant violation of these vows. They live a life defined by selfishness, defined by seeking their own pleasure, living for themselves, a life that's rarely repentant, a life really that looks more like the lives of those who have never been saved at all. And the saddest part about this, according to Jesus, is they are not true disciples. They are not true believers. They may think they are. They may have had a Christian experience somewhere in their life, but the message of salvation, the message of what it takes to become a Christian is, is not mere profession of faith. It doesn't stop with Peter's confession, and that's God. And Jesus says, well, that's it. All you need to do is say the right things and believe the right things. No, Jesus launches right after that confession into a life of discipleship, a life lived according to the vows that you took. Jesus, building on that confession of Peter, is demonstrating to us really what I think is the most neglected part of the gospel in our society today. 
That is the fact that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after Jesus. If you're to be a true disciple, it's not just about profession. It's not just about calling yourself a Christian or engaging in Christian things or listening to Christian radio. It is living true to the vows you made, much like you made in marriage. When Jesus is saying this to the disciples, it's nothing new. This was true in the Old Testament. It was true, look back to the ministry of John the Baptist, he's calling people to repent, prepare their hearts for the coming Messiah. And Jesus Himself had already said over and over again, repent and believe the gospel. So this idea of repentance and, and living lives in accordance with repentance was, was true to the gospel from the beginning, but Jesus is making it very clear here, this is part and parcel to the gospel. If you are to come after Me, you live a certain life, you make certain vows, and you do your best to live according to those vows. And when you fail, you rush to repentance and rest in the forgiveness that Jesus has provided. You make those vows, yes, at your profession, at the confession. You make those vows at the moment of conversion or salvation. But repentance is then living a life according to those vows. This is what repentance is. And anyone who says otherwise in terms of becoming a Christian completely denies this text, defies the truth that's here. When you repent, you're not just availing yourself of all the blessings of Christianity. That's the lie of the prosperity gospel we studied last week. Rather, in true salvation, you are bringing yourself under His sovereign lordship. You are submitting everything to Him. You're telling Him He's in total control of your life, your plans, your desires, your family, your money, your job. He is lo your Lord, and you have become His servant, and you have come to Him on His terms, not your terms seeking to give to Him, not get from Him whatever blessing you think you want. And this is the way of every true believer. They live repentant. They live according to those vows. Well, that's what this passage is all about, and the verse that we're looking at today is the theme of this entire section. Now, let me read to you verse 24 again, and we're going to dissect each part of what it means to live broken, live surrendered, live repentant. Verse 24, again, a very familiar verse. Jesus told His disciples, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Today I'm giving you all the gospel. In fact, I would say this is, again, where most presentations of the gospel fail these days, in terms of entering the kingdom, usually it's you come to Jesus on your terms based on what you want for your life, and here is Jesus saying it's exactly the opposite. You give up everything for the cause of Christ. In addition to the profession, in addition to believing certain things about Christ, then you make these vows and you follow up by following after Christ. So three things, you see them there in the text, and my outline just falls directly from the text. Number one, deny yourself. Deny yourself. What does deny yourself mean? Well, I think most people in this world want to go to heaven, especially if they're at the point where they've intellectually come to believe in the things of Christ and things of, of Jesus and His ministry. They believe in heaven. They believe in God. They believe in Jesus. And so, they want to know how to get to heaven. Much like the rich young ruler, they come to Jesus and they, they want to know, how do I enter the kingdom of heaven? I think most people, especially the ones who affirm the things of Scripture, would, would say, yes, I affirm this and I, and I want to go to heaven. 
I'll tell you what else. Most people want to be better people. They want to do better. They want to be more moral. They want to act more ethical. They want to have victory over sin that besets them. And they even consent to the facts of Jesus. They consent to the things of the doctrines of of Christ, and they want to be better people, and they want to go to heaven. And most people sort of stop right there, and they say, now that's enough, right? Just to want to go to heaven and want to be a better person and sincerely believe in the things, that's enough, right? Jesus says in this passage, wrong. That mentality, if that's where it ends, if that's where the gospel ends, if that's where the idea of salvation ends, it's in stark contrast to what we see all of the Bible. You think about passages like Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. You could even say the surrendered, the ones waving that white flag. He saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. What did Jesus say at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You're broken, you're surrendered, you're repentant. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the essence of self-denial. This is the kind of attitude that's demonstrated by the story that Jesus tells of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, another a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like that other, uh, like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Scripture teaches us that we don't come to Christ with demands. We don't come to Him with desires. We come to Him with self-denial. It's brokenness, it's surrender, it's contrition. And Jesus, if you think about it, looking at His his life and ministry and reading Him talking to lost people, Jesus, by today's standards, would have made a horrible evangelist. Really. You think the way that people evangelize others now, it, 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 it is nothing like the way Jesus did it. He always seems to make it harder for people to get into the kingdom. We tend to try to make it easier. He always seems to find the, the thing that they refuse to surrender. He, he sort of pinpoints the, the area of their life where they reject Christ and, and don't want to deny themselves, and he goes straight to that thing and asks for self-denial. And sadly, so many turn away. Luke chapter 9, three different people come to Jesus. And each, each time, Jesus unveils to them that they worship something other than them, other than him, that they're unwilling to deny themselves of, of something. For one, it was his house. For another, it was his father, or most likely his inheritance from his father. For another, it was his family. And Jesus says, unless you deny yourself your rights to have all these things, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Perhaps the best example of Jesus' evangelism is there at the rich young ruler, this rich man, this young man, came to Jesus and he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and right there, probably you and I would say, well, just repeat this prayer after me and you'll be a Christian. You believe these things, right? All right, just say this prayer and you're in. 
Jesus didn't do that. Jesus shows this man that he arrogantly thought himself as good, but there is none good, only God. This man felt he was a good man. This man felt that he was sincere and earnest and true. But Jesus says, here's your God. It's your stuff. Go sell everything you have. Give all the proceeds to the poor and follow me. Deny yourself. Deny yourself your riches. Deny yourself your belongings. And it says that man turned away saddened because he had great possessions. That was his God. That was his idol. Self-denial was not what he wanted to hear from Jesus. He wanted to hear what, what mantra he could say, what prayer he could pray, what sort of ritual he could go through and get into the kingdom. He felt he was earnest. He felt he was good or perhaps good enough. And Jesus went straight to his God and said, deny yourself. Now, so many people are like this. They, they think they can have Christ and have their idols. They're proud sinners like this rich young ruler they like to proclaim how good they are, how much they know. They're, they're proud in their profession. They're proud in the sense that they want Christ and their own pursuits. The proud sinner wants Christ in his possession. The proud sinner wants Christ in his sin. The proud sinner wants Christ and his desires. The proud sinner wants Christ and his personal life goals, his promotions. But the pers person who's crushed in spirit, who's broken, comes to Christ, denies himself everything and says, it's all yours. In fact, I'm yours. That's what self-denial is. Ladies and gentlemen, there are so many people who call themselves Christians who have not made any effort in self-denial. In fact, so many Christians today, if you look at their lives, and maybe I'm describing even your own heart, the reason they came into Christianity, the reason they, they came to church, the reason they, they said they believed in Christ is to get something. Maybe it was health or wealth or prosperity or some sort of blessings of being in a church. They come to Christ to take, to receive, rather than to give. Again, I illustrated this last week. That's the essence of the prosperity gospel. The whole idea is to come to Jesus so you can get something. Millions of people come to Christ in that way. You add to that many others who we might call the self-esteem cultist. Every passage is read from sort of a narcissistic point of view. It's all about finding personal purpose, personal value, self-esteem, confidence, and some level of assurance that everything is turning around and everything's going to be good for you. On top of that, you have the pragmatist, Christ, church, religion. It's just an excuse to use your life's energy for the pursuit of greater and greater, bigger and bigger. And Jesus says here, following me is not about getting. It's about total surrender. It's about giving everything, denying yourself, even your life, for my sake. Well, that leads us to the second thing that Jesus mentions here. In order to be a disciple, you deny yourself. And number two, you take up your cross. Take up your cross. The second part of repentance, the second part of this principle is to take up your cross. And, and we need to get a grip as 21st century people on, on how that would have sounded to the disciples back then. The cross for them was not a little gilded decoration on their, around their neck or on the wall of their house as some sort of picture. It certainly wasn't something that they would talk about in terms of 
their personal hardship, all these migraines, well, it's just the cross I bear. They would never talk like that about the cross. The cross would have been a well-known tool of execution. Can you imagine gilding a little electric chair and putting it around your neck? Your wife putting a noose on the side of your wall? That's how they thought of the cross. They didn't feel warmly about the cross at this point. The cross was not some beautiful, meaningful thing to them at this point. Crucifixion was reserved for the most hardened criminals. It was for the most repugnant of criminals. It was a sickening instrument of cruelty and torture and death. It was a picture of shame and dehumanization. Not unlike today's executions where they try to be as humane as possible and make it fast and as painless as possible, back then it was to maximize shame and maximize the pain, and that's what the cross stood for. Crucifixions were done in the most visible of places. It was the Roman apparatus of terror used to keep the the lowest classes of people in line. Usually slaves were the ones who were crucified. 71 B.C., the Roman general Crassus, I mean, this is just not even a generation before Jesus, not even a hundred years before Jesus speaking these words. Crassus defeated the slave rebel Spartacus and crucified him and 6,000 of his followers lining along the Appian Way. You can imagine 6,000 crosses of suffering people. Not long after Mark had written his gospel, and perhaps not long after Matthew wrote his gospel, Nero would set about crucifying Christians for burning Rome when it actually was probably him. One of the proconsuls in that era got angry at a group of Jews and decided he would crucify 2,000 of them in one day. Part of any crucifixion was, of course, the shame of the person being executed having to carry his cross naked through the streets to the jeers and mockery of the crowds. Again, most of the time, these people would be criminals, murderers, thieves, insurrectionists. They'd be grouped with all the filth-sodden felons, and these wicked people would carry their cross to the point of their execution. So when Jesus said, take up your cross, the disciples didn't think of a beautiful church with a cross in it. They thought of this horrifying device of torture and death. And that's the message of Jesus here. If you're to deny yourself, you do it knowing that you have accepted any pain, any shame, even humiliating death, if this is what's required of you to follow Christ. And Jesus had just told them that, that He's going to be tortured and killed. And now He tells them, you too have to follow Me. You too have to have this willingness to take up your cross and and walk, as it were, this shameful path to your execution. And so you come to Jesus and you say, Lord, I'm all yours, even if it means shame, even if it means pain, even if it means death. Whatever you call me to do, I receive this as the highest of honors in identifying myself with my Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what it means take up your cross. Does that define your Christian life? Doing whatever it takes to follow Christ? Or are you one of these fence riders who try to have your cake and eat it too, sort of live this life that's pleasing to yourself and 
not very sacrificial at all. Well, all of this, by definition, is what it means to be a follower of Christ. So, Jesus says in sort of a summary way, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What is it to be a true believer, a true Christian? You deny yourself, number one. You take up your cross, number two. And number three, you follow Christ. You follow Christ. This is the third principle, the third part of repentance. That you follow Jesus. The word follow there is the word akulotheto. It's where we get the word acolyte. I don't know if you've ever come across that word before. We don't use it a lot, but the word acolyte. An acolyte is someone who's, who's extremely and profoundly devoted in terms of following someone else. Not just a, a fan, but a genuine follower. It's not just someone who has a broad appreciation, but who is an intimate follower, an acolyte is a genuine disciple. The word acolyte actually implies two things. Maybe you want to write these two things down, and for us it means two things. One, it means to know Jesus, to be an acolyte, to follow after Jesus. It's to know Jesus. It, it is a desire to be near Jesus, to be intimate with Jesus, to have fellowship with Jesus, to have a, a friendship with Jesus. It's a desire to rely and depend on the fulfillment that, that friendship with Jesus would provide for you. By the way, Paul says friendship with Christ means being enemy with the world. Think back to that, that human parable the salva of salvation, that is marriage, a marriage relationship full of love and joy and dependence. You see this love, this intimacy, this joy, this interdependence. Paul says that's just a shadow that's just a, a parable. That's just a, a picture of the real thing. The real thing is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus was teaching in John chapter 6, and He had taught some particularly hard things about His life, His ministry, some doctrines that were hard for people to swallow. And a bunch of people left Jesus, it says, at that point, never to follow Him again. And Jesus looked to His disciples and says, are you going to leave me as well? Remember what Peter said, John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that You are the Holy One of God. That's the emotion. That's the attitude of a true disciple, isn't it? He wants to know Christ. He's an acolyte. And it's more than just knowing Jesus on that emotional or relational level. It's, it's even more than that. To know Jesus is also to, to know His doctrine, to know the story of His life and the, the teachings that Jesus gave. All those people left him in John 6. Why? Because he taught hard things. They didn't want to hear those things anymore. He talked about the sovereignty of God. He talked about the, the blood and the flesh and, 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 and following him to his death. The false Christians, all the false disciples, all just abandoned Jesus at this point. But a true disciple says, I drink it all in. You hear the hard things in Scripture, you hear the hard doctrines, the hard truths, the things maybe that are hard to wrap your mind around, and you just say, yes and amen, I believe it and I follow because I want to know my Savior. 
I want to know Him. I want to believe Him. You know what Paul prayed for over and over and over and over again? You read the letters of Paul to the churches over and over again. He prayed for the churches that they would have knowledge of the Savior. Then he dived deep into doctrine and theology. And these were baby Christians in baby churches, brand new churches, and he's diving deep into doctrine and theology Why? Because as a believer, they ought to know and have a great desire to know Christ. We have something in American Christianity started about 150 years ago. You might call it anti-intellectualism. And this is idea that in order to really follow Christ, you sort of just sever your brain from following Christ. You just don't, you don't worship Christ with your mind. You don't worship Christ with your, with your uh, intellect. It's all about heart. It's all about emotion. It's even gotten to the point, I've heard this many times where where pastors will stand up and and mock the idea of of worshiping God with your mind, mock the idea of of pursuing God in an intellectual way. And you'll hear people say amen. I just recently heard someone do this. This idea that you can't pursue Christ unless you do it mindlessly. This ignores one of Jesus' most famous commands, love God with all your heart, soul, and what? Mind and your strength. Love God, God with all your mind. I've been advised by many folks the years to sort of dumb down the sermons, make it simpler, not too deep, not too doctrinal. It's interesting, those requests, 100% of them have come from longtime Christians. New Christians love doctrine. And they know, I'm not going to capture all of it, but they eat it up. They love the deep things. It's the long-time hardened Christians who really don't want to do anything. They've gotten to this habit, this hardened life, where they really don't think they have to grow much anymore. They just want to be reminded of all the things they think they already know. They don't want to worship. They don't want to work toward a greater knowledge of Christ. But this is what it means to be an acolyte, to be a follower of Christ. It's to know Him, not just in an emotional way, not just in an attitude way, but to know Him in your mind. So to follow Jesus, to be an acolyte, is indeed to know Him. The word uh, acolyte also means to imitate Jesus. You think of a, a child, usually a little boy, who watches everything that his father does, the mannerisms, the actions, the attitudes, the responses, for good or for bad. Children watch their parents and imitate Well, as Christians, if anyone should be our model, it should be Jesus. We're called to look at Him for His truth, for His kindness, for His love, for His discernment, for His doctrine. As I just mentioned, all the doctrinal things that He taught were to look to Him and imitate Him in these things. I wrote down some examples of how the Bible tells us to look to Christ for His humility and, and mimic His life in terms of humility. 1 John 2, 6, the one who, who says He abides in Him, that being, speaking of Christ, abides in Christ, ought to Himself walk in the same manner as He walked. How did Christ walk? Romans 15, 2, for Christ pleased not Himself, but His neighbor for edification. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 9, Jesus said, I am meek and lowly. John 13, He says, after having washed the disciples' feet, love one another as I have loved you. Notice we have the passage in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It says, have this mind. Some of your translations even said, have attitude. Follow Christ in this way, this way that will be defined by humility. So we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
Yes, we want to know Him relationally. We want to know Him rationally, intellectually. We want to know Him in, the terms, in terms of imitating Him. We want to follow Jesus Christ. Again, does this define your life? But the people who know you best say, yeah, He's Christ-like. She's Christ-like. The Bible tells us that we are the bride of Christ, but it also tells us that we are the body of Christ. We are the embodiment of Christ here on earth. In Ephesians 4.15, it says we ought to strive to mature, to grow up in every way into the head of the church who is Christ. As we do that, Paul says in verse 17 of Ephesians 4, we are no longer to walk in sin, but what we have learned of Christ... We've learned Christ, and we put off that old self and pursue a new self, verse 21, who's created after the likeness of God, Jesus Christ. So, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the message of salvation. Christ provided atonement for our sin. Christ provided the righteousness that we need to be covered with before God, so that we will not be judged by God. We believe in these things, and we believe in the resurrection that validated what Christ did. He lived that life. He died that atoning death. He paid for our sin. He provides righteousness. We believe in the resurrection that He's conquering death and sin. But it's not enough just to believe those things in our mind. It's also a vow, a vow to deny ourselves, a vow to take up our cross, and a vow to follow after Christ. Let me tell you, when you do this, as hard as this vow may seem, as difficult and hard and painful as that vow may seem, the truth is, this is where you find all your joy and all your peace and all your rest. We just read it. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is where you find your joy. This is where humans are to find their rest and joy, by following Christ. Let's pray that we would do this. Lord, I know that there are those here who perhaps have intellectually or emotionally followed after Christ, but they have never made this vow. They have never come to that point where they deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Christ, no matter what may come, willing to give up all their possessions, willing to give up all their money, all their time, even willing to give up their lives. And so I pray that you would touch them in their hearts, give them the desire to surrender everything. Give them the desire to follow Christ. Those of us who are believers, Lord, what a magnificent reminder of our vows. Just like in marriage, we need to be reminded of our vows and what we've committed ourselves to in terms of marriage, Lord. That's just a small picture of our relationship with you. We need to be reminded of our vows to you. And we have decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. Now, we want to live lives that demonstrate that we have indeed denied ourselves, and we do indeed take up our cross and follow Christ, to imitate Him, to know Him. And Lord, we need Your strength, so I pray that today's message and the reading of this text will have moved us by your spirit to obey these things. Help us in this, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus.
Amen. Stand with me, if you will. Go now, knowing in your pursuit of following Jesus, this burden is indeed easy, and this yoke is light. So with joy, we may part from here with worship, the worship of Jesus on our hearts and our lips.